in, in light of uh, what we talked about last time regarding a plague or cholera or coronavirus, how many know the song, Now Thank We All Our God? Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices. Who knows the author? Martin Rinkert. Martin Rinkert. Martin Rinkert, 17th century, 16, during the 30 years war, 1618, 1648. At the end of 1648, the, 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 the Treaty of Westphalia. Uh, anyway, it was, it was a religious war, religious battle. Well, there was a plague that broke out, Martin Rinkert, in Martin Rinkert's town. And he did about 50 funerals a day. 50, maybe a week. It was a lot. <laughs> well, how many, do, how many have done 50 a week? Yeah, uh, the, it, was, it was huge. And, and, in the, and he's the author of Now Thank We All Our God. It's just one of those that, you know, it, it gives, when you know the perspective or the context in which someone writes something, um, it, it adds to the significance of, of the hymn. That's Martin Rinkert, uh, Now Thank We All Our God. Um, and so it, it, for me, it just simply adds to the significance of it. It's, it's, an, it's a fleshing out the truth that we affirm in the scriptures. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to I focus on a couple of things. I want to focus on um, the, the, the process, and I want to focus on the product. That is the process that God used, which is Second Peter, and then the, the, the product or the result, which is the uh, authoritative scriptures. And uh, so we'll, we'll, read, we'll read this. Uh, and then uh, I will uh, just summarize what we're uh, addressing here, what we're affirming. So Peter, Second uh, Peter, uh, chapter 1. Pages are too thin. Uh, and we uh, begin uh, in uh, verse uh, 16, and we'll read then uh, to the end of the chapter. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, whom, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain." And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I think, uh, friends, this is a, a, a foundational text that describes the process that God, the Holy Spirit, used to produce what we have as the Scriptures or the Word of God. And notice, we often don't, don't uh, think about this often, but we, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. That is to say, you know what? Um, it's done. It, it is done. 
We, we, we have it. it the, the, the prophecies that were made, they have, they have been fulfilled. The promise is fulfilled. And, and it's more fully confirmed. And friends, we're not now looking for something else. It's you will pay, do well to pay attention to it. It's precisely what he says. And we often overlook that, that truth when we focus on the rest of the text, which is, which is critical, but let's not forget that, that what we have is more fully confirmed. Yeah, wow. So how do we, how do we read this then? Just, let's just work through the text. The process, men moved by the Holy Spirit. This is extremely important to know and understand. Above all, you must understand, Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Peter, Peter writes, and, and, and notice, uh, it's, it's first of all, first of all. Remember, you know, when I, when I read that, it's, it sort of uh, brings me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That which is of first importance. It sort of resonates, doesn't it? So it's not just, remember, we talked earlier that if you want to talk about the foundational base of what we know, what is it? It's the Bible. That is, this is, this is of first importance for us for determining anything and everything. The Bible. And then, that which is of first importance regarding salvation, what is it? Well, Jesus was died, crucified, buried, rose again, uh, right? Appeared. And, and, and so you, you, there you have the principles of theology. God or the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death, burial, resurrection, and that truth captured in God's word, the scriptures. That which is of first of all. That is that which is uh, important. Secondly, scripture or prophecy does not originate in the mind or the will of, of the prophet or based on his assessment or interpretation of an event, either past or future. That is, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. So this, this is not, this is, the, the, the point here, there's a, there's a divine concursus. That is to say, God the Holy Spirit and human beings, the concursive, the, the together that then writes or produces the scripture without, it's not mechanical, you know, it, it, it's not sort of uh, the, the God the Holy Spirit overtakes such that uh, you go into a trance and utter certain sayings or whatever the case might be. It's not that. It's not that at all. Um, it, it, is, it is the Holy Spirit coming upon, guiding, leading, so that the end result, it, it's not their own interpretation, but, but what God had intended. Third, Scripture or prophecy did not have its origin in man, but in God. And that's, again, the fundamental foundational truth is that this is God speaking. God speaking. You know, often we will talk about, the, when we think about the, the, the person of Jesus Christ, or think of Jesus Christ, we think of two aspects of, of Jesus Christ. We think of Jesus Christ. Think about your theology classes. You, <laughs> excuse me, when you studied the, the Jesus Christ, you focused, first of all, probably on his person, and then you focused, what, what did you focus on secondly? His work. That's exactly right. So here we have God who speaks. God who talks. God and his word. And, and, and they go hand in hand. You can't, extra, you can't pull them apart. Fourth, men were the means through which God communicated his inerrant word. That is, men spoke from God. And then finally, the Holy Spirit 
guided the process of inspiration, which resulted in inerrancy as they ensured men communicated through writing the very words of God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit superintends this process without, without making them less than they are, but that's this divine work of God using human beings as they were. And, and the, the language of the day, the, the Hebrew or the, the Greek or the Aramaic uh, with a few uh, texts, but, but, but th that's what was used. And God superintended the process. And so contrary to what Greg Boyd would conclude, it, it, any view you take is going to have questions that might remain outstanding, right? I mean, you just you don't know uh, all the answers. There's a humility that, to which we come to the text. But because it resides in God himself, that, that is, that is our, that's the, in a sense, the solution. It, it's the answer. And it's not that there aren't, there aren't answers to some of those questions. But it also, with the humility that I think we need to exercise, there are some questions we, we won't fully have an answer for. We need to be okay with that. You know, sometimes I think we want to press too far and, and become too confident about some things. And I want to say press far enough, press as far as you have to. Because I, I, think, I think sometimes we, we jump to mystery prematurely. Sometimes I think we don't, we don't tap out soon enough. And, and so it, it's, it's not an either-or, it, it's a both-end. So this is, this is sort of the process, and I think that is helpful to understand. Now, let's look at the other text of Scripture, 2 Timothy. You have your Bible, 2 Timothy. These are, these are familiar. It's just something important for us to remember, right? And, 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 and often, you know, we've studied these things before. They're pretty familiar. They're pretty common. But, but it does us well to just be reminded all over again of these truths uh, that we have uh, affirmed the scriptures that we've memorized and, and, and the, the, the Bible that we teach and preach and read on a regular basis and, and to be reminded that there is a transformative effect of reading the Bible, of preaching the Bible, of, te of, 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 of studying the Bible. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to start um, in verse, I'm going to read the, the larger section, verse, verses 10 to 17. Uh, 10 to, I'm sorry, 10 to 18. Paul writes to Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, notice verse 14. Paul, notice the but. That is to say, what he's described, he's saying, you're, you're going to be different. But as for you, you're called to something different. That's the, the but. There's, there's something that's going to be contrary to what, how other people are living. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped, uh, may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is uh, verse 17. I, it, uh, I, I said 18. It's 17. What do we have here in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3? First, we have the divine origin. This, this relates back to what we looked at in 2 Peter. That is, the divine origin of Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture. Secondly, the extent. So the divine origin is in God himself. God speaks. God talks, right? The extent of inspiration, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, just so you know, there is another way of looking at that, or some, some will consider it. So when you think about all, is it in reference to all Scripture, or is it in reference to all God-breathed? So you see, what some have done is wanted to say, um, all God-breathed Scripture, wanting to suggest not all of it is. So you have Scripture within Scripture, right? So you have, you have the bigger book, but then you have really the God-breathed Scripture within the book. That, by the way, that would be some, uh, I think a, a, a common day illustration of that would be to some degree the red-letter Christians if you've heard of the red-letter Christians, to some degree. Now, they're wanting to elevate the, the teachings of Jesus, but now that's problematic, too, because now, in, in a sense, it, it's you have a canon within a canon. You have, you have something more narrow than, than the Bible itself. And, and, and that's some of the argument. I'm not going to go through this, but, but all that to say, um, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's not all God-breathed Scripture. And, the, and there's a reason. All God-breathed Scripture is a delimiting statement such that there's some that is and some that isn't. Now, what's a problem with, with, with that potential reading? All God-breathed Scripture. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, it's and, and uh, who, gets to, who gets to decide? Exactly. Who gets to decide? And that, that then ends up happening. You know, we, we elevate this over against that, and that's, that's no longer relevant, uh, and th this is part particularly relevant. Um, yeah, and, 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 and so, you know, since I'm the pastor, I get to decide. No. But that, that gets to be the problem, and that, that's, that's uh, one of the ways in which it's sort of uh, softened. Uh, and then there are other uh, um, statements that I've, I've included. I'm not going to focus on those. But notice third. So if we've gone to the divine origin, the extent, origin is God, the extent is all, the focus. What's the focus of Scripture? The holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through whom? Through faith in Jesus Christ. What this, what this says is, think about this in, in the context of Jesus with the two men on the road to Emmaus. What does Jesus do in Luke 24, beginning in verse 25? What does he do? He, sorry? Which scriptures? The law and the prophets. Prophets and the Psalms. I mean, it's the, it's the three. That, that is the way that the Old Testament law, prophet, and the Psalms. And, and, um, and, and it's the way it was summarized. The Old Testament was summarized. So Jesus here is saying, he's in essence, Jesus is affirming the Old Testament canon. And not only is he affirming the Old Testament canon, he also is saying, and by the way, I'm the fulfillment of that stuff. 
And so, so what that means then for us as Christians, this gets, Mike, a little bit to, to some of how we understand the Testaments, and that is that if we as Christians interpret the Bible as if Christ hasn't come, or apart from faith in Christ, or apart from a lens of Jesus Christ, we will be reading the Bible more like a Jew than we will be a Christian. And friends, that happens. Now here's another challenge. And that is when we preach, when we preach or when we teach, do we teach through faith in Christ or do we teach moralistically? Do, not done. See, if we, if we preach and teach the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, you know what we're preaching? Done, not do. Tell you what, it's easier as a, pre- it's easier as a preacher to get people to do something morally Guilt them. Guilt them. Don't grace them. But you know, I've learned over the years, though I still will, I'm still an offender, right? Hi, I'm Greg. I'm not an alcoholic, but I'm a sinner. Um, and, 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 and that is the, the, the temptation of, of, of doing and, and thinking that, and, it, and, and the, the, the challenge is, it's not that we don't do, but on what basis? It's the basis of done. It's the completed, finished work of Jesus Christ. There's nothing we add to what Christ's completed, finished work without subtracting from it, without it becoming another gospel. And so that, that's, I think, part of the challenge is here to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. There is a, is a uh, Christocentric understanding of the Bible that we read it through Jesus Christ. And that then means Jesus Christ's perfect obedience matters. That is to say, you know what? God still demands perfect obedience of every created being. The catch is this. Someone's done it for us. So you're either gonna, we're either going to pay for it on our own or we're going to have to be obligated to fulfill it on our own or we by faith say, I, I, I place my faith in that one who did. That's, that's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the way we read and understand the Bible. So, so now, now bear with me, Andy. Andy, stay with me. So what this means, what this means is when we focus on the cross, Jesus, uh, uh, it is finished, right? It is finished. And, and, and the term that John uses to uh, uh, spell out, explicate what Jesus said is in a, in a certain tense that says not only was it done there, but the doneness there has ongoing implications on into uh, perpetuity, uh, ongoingly, right? It, the implications are ongoing. So, Jesus, it's done. That is what we call the indicative. Now, stay with me, Andy. We'll explain it. The indicative. The indicative. An indicative is a statement of fact. It's a statement of fact. It's done. For example, think of Colossians 3, verse 1. You have been buried with Christ. It's a statement of fact. But based upon that, the done is the do. The imperative. Was that you, Zach? Oh, nice. The imperative, that's the command. But it's not a command apart from the done. Because otherwise, what is it? It's legalism. 
It's moralism. And I, I, I'm thinking, friends, often, all too often, we do preach this one apart from this one. And this is the ground for this. Absolutely. So, Paul, Colossians 3, therefore, what are you supposed to do? Set your mind on the things above. But it's not done without this, having been done. And so, uh, this is what the focus of Scripture reminds us. It, it, it's critical for us. Number four, the focus of Scripture, another, they're able to make you wise for salvation. Uh, I did that one, sorry. Uh, I doubled that one. Sorry. Uh, this would be four then. The broad usefulness of Scripture, uh, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. You know, in many ways, Graham Cole at our theology conference who spoke on the doctrine of the Scriptures, he said that this expression here, that which the Scripture does in our lives, is the same task that, he's, that, that the Scriptures give to pastors and teachers and elders and overseers. That is, our task is that of teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But you see, this is why we need to be under the Word of God as we teach the Word of God, as we preach the Word of God. And then finally, the, number five, then the sp specific purpose of the Scripture, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There is an implication to that. There is an entailment to that. Thanks be to God, Christ has lived the perfect righteous life on our behalf there is an imputed uh, righteousness that he has fully obeyed the law for us. And, and we, through faith, have all the benefits. So it's not just. See, when we, affirm, when we affirm justification by faith, it's not just that our sins have been forgiven, we are, we are declared righteous before God, but that Christ's righteousness, wow, has been imputed to us. That's, that is the material principle of the Reformation. The formal, remember the formal? What's the formal principle? The, the authority of the Word of God. That's right. So these, this is what's foundational for us to, to remember as we, as we think about uh, the Word of God. Any thoughts, comments on that? Anyone preached on that? those texts as, as of late? They're just good to be reminded of again. You know, they're foundational for us. Um, but, you know, um, every, every fall, um, the story is told. Uh, Vince Lombardi would start the football season with the Green Bay Packers and say, gentlemen, this is a football. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes. Yep. That's where I'm saying the guilt and grace. Um, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, it, it's almost like uh, you want to beat people into submission. Sorry, that's probably a bad expression these days. Sorry. Um, you want to um, uh, heavy-handedly, um, and and there's there's very little. Uh, understanding or assessment or recognition of grace um, as well. I think so. I do think so. Like so many things, John, I think there, um, you know, often, often when, there's, when there's an excess or concern or problem one way, 
the temptation, well, we will respond, but the temptation of which we're probably not even aware is a pendulum sort of response. And, and especially on the issue of indicative imperative or uh, justification, sanctification, that sort of language, um, it's really easy to go one way, you know, sort of a pendulum. Here's the catch, though, what happens. If, if this is the, the middle, right, and, and the problem is here, this side of the pendulum swing, we end up over here, but you know what? We think over here is in the middle. That becomes hugely problematic, and that's where I think, the, the, to some degree, the ballast is historical theology, where, where we, we're able to have some of the, 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 the fog blown away and give us a sense of balance on that issue. Um, so, but I do, I do think there is another, the other side of that problem. Yes, very much so. Other comments? Mm-hmm. Um, he was he his he was addressing the other side of that. He was addressing more legalism than antinomianism. Uh, antinomianism is there is no law. He was saying, are you? Oh, I see. I thought you were asking the other. Sorry. I thought you were asking the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason for that. He was moving in a, for any of you following, he was moving in a Lutheran direction, and there was law versus gospel. It was, not, it was not law and gospel, it was law versus gospel, and that's a Lutheran understanding of the two testaments. Um, and right or wrong, uh, uh, I don't think it's right, um, but that was, that was the problem. So that then is antinomy. I'm sorry, I misunderstood what you were saying um, uh, initially. Uh, all that to say, I think, I think there's both of them. There's both of them. There's, there's either the antinomianism or the legalism, either way. And th- they're challenges. This is why we need help uh, thinking these things through. Um, you know, you think about it. Th- y- there's been a, a huge emphasis these days, and I think it's been good, the last decade on gospel stuff, gospel-centered, gospel. I mean, you want to, it, it's become a shibboleth for evangelicals. If you use the word, you're okay. Honestly. Uh, and so it's become a shorthand for, yep, you're in, you know, you're not, or whatever. You just you go on Amazon and find gospel-centered, whatever, and you're going to find parenting and finances and grandparenting and pastoring and neighboring and uh, not that last one, but you will the others. Um, you will find the gospel, and, and there's, a, there's a rightness to that. But, but there's also something that when it becomes sort of um, uh, everything, it, it becomes almost too much. Uh, and how can you say that, right? Um, but, but it's, again, it's a response to something that's right, but it's been sort of um, co-opted as well, I think, uh, to some degree. Yeah. One very practical way to keep this balance between uh, avoiding legalism or moralism and overly preaching doctrine of defense or application is to make sure your pericope is big enough that you go back and tap into the indicatives in the context. Sometimes they're stated, often they're implied. Mm-hmm. So 
so they will always use an application, even in doctrinal passages, and there will always be some indicative underpinning, even in texts that are more hortatory. But you've got you've got to take enough text to find those, even if it's not the one you've announced you're going to preach on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because they'll have it. Uh, Paulo, and then I'm going to come back to push you a little further. Okay, um, so, so uh, John, how do you parent? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, th- this is where it's this is where it's fleshed out, and I and I think you know here here's honestly what I'm what I'm sensing a little bit. As much as we disliked, this is being recorded. Oh, well, uh, as much as we as much as we have taken issue with Josh Harris, I kiss dating goodbye, and there's been a strong pushback to that. Now, I none of us are happy where he's ended up, right? At this point, none of us. But did everything he say, granted he was, he was a kid, all right, 20-some years, I get it, right? But did, does that mean everything he said was wrong? And I think there's been a response, a backlash, that I don't think has been all fair or healthy either. And I think it's been com- almost completely dismissed. And, 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 and rather, now we're I- engaging in gospel-centered dating or gospels. And, and you just, yeah, you know, I, I, okay. Uh, but be careful that we don't too quickly dismiss everything. It's sort of the baby bathwater phenomenon. And so how do we then, so uh, d- d- tell me how you're going to do it then. So what are you going to do with your kids when they date? I, uh, Michael, my son, what are you going to do with Calvin and Ellie? I mean, h- how are you going to do this? And, and what about parenting? And, and so uh, is it, is it uh, and how do you then, indicatives and imperatives? H- h- I mean, h- how do you do this? And at the end of the day, you know, with, in parenting, uh, we're, in the, in the, we're, we're not replacing God, but we are representing God in, in the role of mom and dad, right? And, and, and so there, there is a, you know, at some point, you know, when they're young, you know what, they do, they do obey me because I am dad. Is that an, is that an indicative? Yeah. It's, it's also an imperative. Yeah. So... Uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's both and that, that's where the rubber meets the road so now let's apply that in the context of a family a bigger family with a bunch of families that is the church and how do we live that out and, and I, I'm, I'm saying let, let's press down sometimes I think um, what we expect of others we're not living ourselves and, and that doesn't make it wrong necessarily there, but, but then let's be consistent over here. And that, that's, a, that's a challenge. So I'll be interested to see. And I've, I've said to, to my, own, my own kids, well, you know what? When you have kids, then you can be the parents and you can decide what you're going to do. And uh, you know what? They're going to they're gonna rise up and not, all, not always are they going to call you blessed. I'm just telling you that. <laughs> it will not happen. Furthermore, I promise you I will not say I told you so. I promise you I will not say that. But, but, but we're, you know what? The other thing is this. Uh, give the benefit of the doubt in love. Read, interpret with a hermeneutic of love, not a suspicion. And that is, I, I'm assuming that, you know what? We want to do what's right before God as we train our children. We want to do what's right before God as we shepherd God's people. And we're, we're not going to do it right all the time. But, but, but I believe we want to. I do. Uh, Paulo, and then, yep, that, Paulo first.
Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I think uh, let's not extricate our own experiences with our perspective on this as well. And I think generally what I've learned over the years is often when we have an experience, thanks be to God for this experience that we've had, uh, closer, closeness to God, trans, transformative uh, power in some way or another, overcoming whatever it might be, and, and we are overwhelmed with that. The problem is that we begin to absolutize my experience and then we universalize it. So my experience is the same experience everybody else needs to have. Because uh, I, I, I know I struggled and, 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 and then we extrapolate. Everybody else probably struggles with it too. And, 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 then, and then we universalize it and expect. And that's then where you end up with uh, uh, party spirits. And, and uh, especially today with individual expressivism, that, that notion so rampant in our society and our culture today that that is, that is authenticity. It's, it's the heart of my identity. Um, and it's pretty easy to then absolutize and universalize. And as pastors and teachers, be very careful about that. Thanks be to God for your experience, but d don't, don't demand it of everybody. Same truth. But how many of us have had a Pauline experience, a Damascus Road experience? Now, now I don't know that any of us have had that experience, but how many of us had the, the, the fun, fundamental truth of his experience? How many have had that? Well, we all have. It's being converted, right? So we just, I, we need to be careful about that. Yes? I'm just curious um, because I, I'm pretty simple, and um, in my study, I'm using this kind of idea, so I'm wondering if I'm, if I'm in the right direction or not, I'm speaking you know, too much grace versus too much law. Um, there's this one movie called The Breakup, and, and I kind of can bring everything back to like what I've read or what I've watched, um, where he's fighting with his girlfriend, and she, she says, I want you to want to do the dishes. And that's sort of like where I fall in line with that. Like I, I want them to desire mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. word because they love God mm -hmm. so much and they love Christ. And so that's sort of like, I don't know if that's sort of, if I'm in the right yeah, sort of that, family of like saying. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and the, the issue for that is that, that it would be the desire of your heart. Yeah. Um, and um, that's what regeneration means. It means that your heart has been changed. It means that your desires have been changed. And, and, um, and if you want to put it in the category then of parenting, um, you know, um, our, our, our kids, we have, being in the Strand family, we have family devotions. You don't have an option, whether you want to be there or not. I, I, I prefer you'd want to be there, but you know what? I'm, I'm not going to hold your hand in, in to, to ensure that you are. But the, the key is this then. Does that exempt us, de depending on their desire, does that exempt us from being responsible ourselves? So God has ordained means and in, in my family, part of those means were family catechizing. Yeah, that is, we pray together, we read scripture together, we, et cetera. Um, and those are means that God uses. Um, but there's also the person who also needs to then be converted. See, I, I, I don't convert them. But that doesn't exempt me from the, the means. Uh, and so, yes, our ultimate desire. So, for example, it would be like this. When one is converted, often, often they're converted wanting to be exempted hell. It's legitimate ground for conversion for many. If that would still be the primary motivation 10 years later, 
something would be slightly amiss. So no, there's not just an avoidance of an evil or an avoidance of eternal conscious punishment. It's the presence of God. And if it only stays here, something's slightly amiss. And, and I would say similarly with kids, similarly with family, you know, that it's, it, and that's, that's what's missing when it becomes legalism. Um, and, you know, I, you come to learn over the years that even, that, that legalism will never please God. Even successful legalism will not please God. So, yes, it's in the, it's in the, it's in the category of understanding a heart, a changed heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In that the gospel is the power and the force, and the law, if it goes, it keeps it in its mm-hmm. lane. Whereas if it comes out, it's just a lake that's just everywhere. Mm-hmm. And if it's just a bang, it's just a law without the gospel, it's entirely dry. Yeah. So, like, just that balance of it, it's showing us it's mm-hmm. limited by the gospel, but yep. also it keeps us in line. Yep. It's not the force and the motivation that we have. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, yeah, really like that. Yep. Yeah. All right. These are the Bible's claims. Uh, it's God's word is reliable in every way. We'll just look through a number of these. The Bible is free from all impurities. Psalm chapter 12, verse 6. It is eternal and unchanging in the heaven, uh, these various texts. Just look at them. Uh, just remember what these texts are. It has unique and unlimited perfection. And by the way, this is God saying this. This is God saying this about his own word. It proves true in every word. The Bible is not only true in each part, but it is also truth when the parts are added together. It is not limited to the truthfulness of man, but is is as truthful as God himself. Again, look at those texts. Any historical detail in the Old Testament narrative can be cited with confidence that it both happened and was written down for our instruction. Eight, every word spoken in Scripture has been spoken by God who never lies and for whom lying is impossible. That gets to the notion of infallibility. It's infallible. God speaks it. It cannot be anything but true. And God's word is not only true, it is truth. Think of Jesus, sanctify us in thy truth. Thy word is truth. Which one? Yeah, uh, in other words, it's not only accurate, um, but it's a body of truth as well. It is, it is, it is truth uh, captured. So it's true, it's accurate. In other words, what's described actually happened. It is accurate, it's historical, but it's also truth. Uh, what, what you could say uh, is that it captures the redemptive history accurately that redemptive history captured accurately is now in the Bible, and thus that is what is truth. 
So that's how I would uh, look at both of those, uh, the, 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 both of those aspects. Now, notice, uh, I'd, I'd like to just have us look at some of the, some witnesses to the Bible's authority. This is, this is uh, looking through some people through history. We'll start with Psalm 19, verses 7 to 14. And I, 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 I love, you know, this, this text, of course, general revelation in Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6. The heavens declare, what does the heavens declare? The glory of God, yeah. And so general revelation, his creation. But then there's special revelation. That is God, God uh, interpreting what he did, what, what is out there. He interprets it for us. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his heirs? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's a verse that I memorized way back in high school days. I, I, I still remember it. Um, but notice this text of what what what. God has said through David, the psalmist, about the Word of God. Notice the various ways it's referred to. Law, testimony, precepts, uh, rules. Um, and, and so there are various ways that the Word of God is understood. And, then, and not only that, but, but the implications of it. It's perfect. And because it's perfect, it revives the soul. It sure makes wise the simple, which we all are, by the way. They're right, rejoicing the heart, pure, enlightening the eyes. I mean, just, you just look at what the Word of God, what it is, and the fruit of what the Word of God does. And, and just being reminded of that and, and reaffirming our commitment to to this, the reality of the Word of God, and trusting that God, through His Word, will bear fruit. Now, there's so much that, that we could talk about, but this is, this is a, a summary uh, of, of the Word of God. Notice, um, this is an interesting one. It comes from Augustine. And talking, and, and I include it, fourth century, I include it because it talks about, um, so how do we understand different differences of opinion when we read the Bible? And, and uh, is, that, is that a problem with the Bible? Is it a problem with the manuscript? Is it a problem with the reader? Um, and he also talks about imperious ignorance. Okay, here's what he says. This comes from the Nicene, post-Nicene fathers. Augustine replied, As I said a little ago, when these men are beset by clear testimonies of Scripture and cannot escape from their grasp, they declare that the passage is spurious. In other words, they don't like, they don't like what the text says. 
they don't like, they're not really wanting to submit to the truth of what the text says. So, so because of that, because it presses on them, they, they claim it's spurious. That is, it's not really known. It's, it's unclear, right? The declaration only shows their aversion to the truth and their obstinacy in error. Unable to answer these statements of Scripture, they deny their genuineness. I mean, this, this is like it's a contemporary day sort of response. But if the, this answer is admitted or allowed to have any weight, it will be useless to quote any book or any passage against your heirs. In other words, if you're going to do that there, it means nothing anywhere. You, you can think that that'll get you off the hook. The problem is it puts you on another hook. That's what, that's what Augustine is saying. It's one thing to reject the books themselves and to profess no regard for their authority. It is another thing to say, this holy man wrote only the truth, and this is his epistle. But some verses are his and some are not. This gets to be what we talked earlier, right? And then when you are asked for a proof, instead of referring to more, uh, to more correct or more ancient manuscripts or to a greater number or to an original text, your reply is, this verse is his because it makes for me. <laughs> I mean, he's calling his bluff. In other words, it's not any more historically accurate. It's not more manuscripts. It's not more truthful. It's just that, you know what? It's the one you like. It's the one you like. And that's what he's, he's calling him out on it. It makes it for me. And this is not his because it is against me. Are you then the rule of truth? Can nothing be true that is against you? <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's really a pretty astounding. And then he goes on. If we are perplexed by an apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is not allowable to say... The author of this book is mistaken. But either the manuscript is faulty, or the translation is wrong, or you have not understood. In the innumerable books that have been written latterly, we may sometimes find the same truth as in Scripture, but there is not the same authority. Scripture has a sacredness peculiar to itself. In other books, the reader may form his own opinion, and perhaps from not understanding the writer may differ from him and may pronounce in favor of what pleases him or against what he dislikes. In such cases, a man is at liberty to withhold his belief unless there is some clear demonstration or some canonical authority to show that the doctrine or statement either must be, uh, must or may be true. But in consequence of the have, uh, but in consequence of the distinctive peculiar, pe peculiarity of the sacred writings, we are bound to receive as true whatever the canon shows to have been said by even one prophet or apostle or an evangelist. Otherwise, not a single page will be left for the guidance of human fallibility if contempt for the wholesome authority of the canonical books either puts an end to that authority altogether or involves it in hopeless confusion. So, earlier I talked about the Princetonian notion of inerrancy and the authority of the Bible. The Princetonians were grounded in Augustine. His strong statement about the authority of the Bible and, and even this, this, this calling him out on, yeah, you don't like this text, so you call it spurious. It's unclear. Sorry, it doesn't work. You claim that and, and you lose your authoritative scriptures. And even this one, if we are perplexed by an apparent, notice it's apparent contradiction, it's not allowable to say the author of this book is mistaken. In other words, it's either the manuscript is faulty or I'm at, pro I'm at, I'm at uh, the problem. It's the, it's the manuscript or the translation is wrong or I've not understood. You cannot say this book is mistaken. That's, that's Augustine's conclusion. Agree or disagree. I'm just saying you want to talk about the historical view of the church, or, uh, the historical view of the Bible, here's, here's an early one. Here's a, here's a very early one. 
And the problem is not with the text. The problem is with the manuscript or, or, or the interpreter. Here's another one. Uh, this is Luther, 1522. One year after his bold confession, here I stand, God help me, at the Diet of Worms, uh, 1521. Luther de described how it was that the Reformation had been brought about solely by the Bible while he went about his daily routines. He writes, uh, this comes from his second Invocavit uh, sermon, Take me, for example, Luther writes, Take me, for example. I opposed indulgences and all papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip and my Almsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. That's a, a belief. In, in an, it wasn't that Luther wasn't seeking to be faithful by God's grace. But at the end of the day, he knew that it wasn't his own smarts, his own courage, his own whatever that, that did the work, the lasting work spiritually. It was the Word, the Word of God that did it. Uh, here's Calvin. John Calvin used three metaphors as he referred to the Scriptures, God's, God's Word. Spectacles, a labyrinthine, thread, and a school as a school. This comes from Graham Cole, which he shared at our theology conference. Spectacles. For as the aged, or those whose sight is defective, when any, however, uh, any book, however fair, uh, is set before them, though they perceive that there is something written, are scarcely able to make out two consecutive words. But when, but when aided by glasses begin to read distinctly, so Scripture, gathering together the impressions of deity, which till then lay confused in our minds, dissipates the darkness and shows us the true God clearly. And those of us that wear glasses, you know exactly what Calvin is talking about. It brings a clearness. It brings a perspective. And so it's, it's like spectacles. Another uh, example is that of the labyrinthine thread. Uh, does he? Yeah, you remember the labyrinth? It was, it was a, a, a cave underneath. Uh, it's myth, mytho, myth, mythological. And uh, anyway, what happened was that, that someone would go down in this, this cave and, and you wouldn't get out. You wouldn't find your way back out. And it was sort of the destruction. You go down there, you will not get out again. And, and what happened in this myth was a thread was brought with the, the person who went down so that they could find their way back out. And so, so Calvin uses that as a model or as an example of what the scriptures are. We're not left in darkness. It's a thread that enables us to find our way to see the light. He says, we should consider that the brightness of the divine countenance, which even an apostle declares to be inaccessible, is kind of a labyrinth. A labyrinth to us inextricable. If the word do not serve us as a thread to guide our path, and that it is better to limp in the way then run with the greatest swiftness out of it. So he uses it like a labyrinthine thread or a school. He writes, Therefore, in order to keep the legitimate course in this matter, we must return to the word of God, in which we are furnished with the right rule of understanding. For Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit, in which as nothing useful and necessary to be known has been omitted, 
So nothing is taught but what it is of importance to know. So the, the pictures of a spectacle or a labyrinthine thread that helps us through or, or that of a school, uh, the ways in which Calvin uh, described uh, the scriptures, which I think are helpful. Uh, Heinrich Bullinger, Second Helvetic Confession, 1566, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. It's a reminder as we prepare our preaching. It, it, it's not that we don't preach, but we preach Christ crucified. Uh, here's John Wesley. He continued in the same biblical stream. He wanted to be a man of one book. He writes, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. For this very end he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri. That is a man of one book. That's Wesley. Here's Spurgeon in reference to John Bunyan, who um, 17th century spent uh, over a decade in prison because he was a nonconformist. What that means is he refused to submit to the book of common prayer. That is the Anglican, what was mandated and required. And he spent over a decade in prison, and he had uh, uh, a wife, a Mary, for, uh, no, a wife, I forget her name, uh, but his daughter Mary was blind. One of his uh, children was blind at home, and he, he, he uh, spent these years in prison. And while he was in prison, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And behind the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress is the most read, purchased book uh, in uh, in uh, history. Here's what uh, Spurgeon said about Bunyan. I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his and you will see that it is almost like the reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture and though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his Pilgrim's Progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. What a statement. You know, would that the people of God say that about us. And not for the sake of people saying it about us. For the sake of knowing God through his word. So when... If you've heard the, the expression bibline, this is where it comes from. It was Spurgeon in reference to Bunyan. Here's Billy Graham. This is a longer one, but, but some of us have forgotten this one, or maybe we haven't heard it before, but it's an incredible story. It's an, an incredible story, so I, I include it. This, was, this, by the way, was, notice over here, it's the first publication of Christianity Today. 1956. So this is seven years after Billy writes about this. And we've now, uh, living on the other side of where Billy has lived, we understand how God used him. But this was the crucible. This is the crucible that God used to form and shape Billy. In 1949, I'd been having a great many doubts concerning the Bible. 
I thought I saw apparent contradictions in Scripture, some things I could not reconcile with my restricted concept of God. When I stood up to preach, the authoritative note so characteristic of all great preachers of the past was lacking. Like hundreds of other young seminary students, I was waging the intellectual battle of my life. The outcome could certainly affect my future ministry. In August of that year, I had been invited to Forest Home Presbyterian Conference Center high in the mountains outside Los Angeles. I remember walking down a trail, tramping into the woods and almost wrestling with God. I dueled with my doubts and my soul seemed to be caught in the crossfire. Finally, in desperation, I surrendered my will to the living God revealed in Scripture. I knelt before the open Bible and said, Lord, many things in this book I do not understand, but thou hast said the just shall live by faith. All I have received from thee I have taken by faith, here and now. By faith I accept the Bible as thy word. I take it all. I take it without reservations. Where there are things I cannot understand, I will reserve judgment until I receive more light. If this pleases thee, give me authority as I proclaim thy word. And through that authority, convict me of sin and turn sinners to the Savior. Within six weeks, we started our Los Angeles crusade which is now history. During that crusade, I discovered the secret that changed my ministry. I stopped trying to prove that the Bible was true. I had settled. I'd settled in my own mind that it was. And this, and this faith was conveyed to the audience. Over and over again, I found myself saying, the Bible says. That became his trademark, by the way. The Bible says. I felt as though I were merely a voice through which the Holy Spirit was speaking. Authority created faith. Faith generated response, and hundreds of people were impelled to come to Christ. A crusade scheduled for three weeks lengthened into eight weeks with hundreds of thousands of people in attendance. The people were not coming to hear great oratory, nor were they interested merely in my ideas. I found they were desperately hungry to hear what God had to say through his holy word. I felt as though I had a rapier in my hand and through the power of the Bible was slashing deeply into men's consciences, leading them to surrender to God. Does not the Bible say of itself, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart? I found that the Bible became a flame in my hands. That flame melted away unbelief in the hearts of the people and moved them to decide for Christ. The word became a hammer, breaking up stony hearts and shaping them in the likeness of God. Did not God say, I will make my words in thy mouth fire? And is not my word like as a fire and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? I found that I could take a simple outline and put a number of pertinent scripture quotations under each point, and God would use this mightily to cause men to make full commitment to Christ. I found that I did not have to rely upon cleverness oratory, psychological manipulation of crowds, or apt illustrations, or striking quotations from famous men, I began to rely more and more upon Scripture itself, and God blessed. And You know, I would, I would say this. You remember this story? You remember? Have you read this story? It's an incredible story of Billy Graham, and we know the story of Billy Graham's life. But in 1949, there was a, there was a battle. Will he believe the Bible or not? And this was before the Los Angeles Crusade that, in a sense, God used to catapult him onto the ministry of faithfulness and fidelity for 50-plus years. Notice his commitment to the Word of God. 
And friends, you need to know that there, during this period of time, again, as he's saying, you know, the, the questions that were being asked and, and there was the divide between, between what was happening in, in Protestant liberalism and, and then you had the divide between evangelicals and fundamentals, the fundamentals of the faith or the fundamentalists and, and Billy's in the crux of this. And there was another parallel evangelist uh, I'm not going to remember his name. Templeton? Charles Templeton, who went the other route than Billy went. He denied the faith. There's a fascinating story about him. Someone went to visit him when he was near death, and one of the things that he had said, uh, if someone asked, that the interviewer asked him if he, if he, you know, things that he missed or whatever about Christianity or the Christian faith and he said sometimes I miss I miss the Lord Jesus this was he was near death he was in a nursing home and, and near death and but just just so you know that the two paths people don't know Charles Templeton name but Billy Billy could have gone that way the same way that Char and he was he was what they say you might know I, I don't I've, I've what I've read is that he was probably more gifted as an evangelist than Billy Graham was Isn't that, isn't that interesting? One denies the authority of the word of God. The other, through this wrestling, affirms it. And you know, I, I, as I also think about this, you know, um, and I think of Greg, probably not the homiletic uh, counsel that we would give. You know, uh, uh, in essence, a simple outline, put a number of pertinent scripture quotations under each point. You know, this is not, this is evangelist, evangelistic messages, right? It's not sort of the same sort of thing as preaching regular. But, but the other thing to, to bear in mind is this. Billy was convinced that the authority resided not in himself or his cleverness or anything else, but the word of God. That's, that's, that's the essence of what we need to take away from here. It was the word of God. And, and that then... His signature statement, the Bible says, God says. And in light, of, in light of what was said earlier about unhitched from the Old Testament, about, you know, that we don't say the Bible says anymore because it doesn't, doesn't carry any weight. You know what? It was not carrying weight then either. And, and, and I'm not saying, let's be aware of our, our, the people to whom we speak, certainly. But this is, this is powerful. It is absolutely powerful. So what do you take away from, from this? What do you take away from some of these quotes that I've shared with you? His, historically. Yeah. I, I see the fascination with this, to go back. I'm sorry. Because this was the application, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> but yeah. But I, I see the application. There's such a, because of social media, there's such an emphasis on actual illustrations, the striking illustrations, mm -hmm. the wow factor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas the wow needs to be taken away by. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely true. You know, sometimes, you know, when we, when we are taken or captured with the illustration, the illustration o overcomes the text itself, and we preach the illustration, not the text. Yeah, I had, a, I, had a, I had a pastor and a professor that taught me about that. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Labyrinthine thread and the school. Each one of those can also be said the Holy Spirit above the Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely critical. And, you know, so, so then, you know, another question that is, so how does inspiration and illumination, uh, you know, how does that come together? That's another tomorrow. <laughs> other, other thoughts, comments? Yeah, Andy. Heinrich Bullinger, 1566. Yep, uh, I can maybe get there, but uh, it was the last one before, right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, please. Exactly. Not normatively, but nevertheless functionally. Mm-hmm. Functionally in the sense, as I said, if I'm faithful to Scripture, when I preach, because I'm preaching Scripture, what people can hear, potentially, is God's words. So it's a kind of a fine distinction, mm-hmm. but a very, very important one, and absolutely right. Yeah. An answer to answer the question. Does that help? Greg. Now, the next time he sees you, Andy, he's going to say, did you read my article? So, um, uh, any other thoughts, comments? Thank you. That, that's, that's good as we process some of these things. All right. Uh, sorry? Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. And the other thing then too is if, if we go down that path, then we are, uh, I'll, I'll be quite blunt, we're condemning people to hell. I mean, we don't condemn them, but we're not, we're not, we're not, crying out to say be saved uh, because if we're not calling sin sin if we're not if we're not preaching the word of God in that way um, then the, they, they will not hear the gospel they will not turn they will not repent and and that that's where some of the issues that that these are not agree to dis- some of these moral issues of the day they're not agree to disagree issues 
They cannot be agree to, dis agree to disagree issues. They cannot be without, without destroying the authority of the Bible. Without destroying the authority of the Bible. Um, yeah, so, you know, we're also going to look at this because I think it is important. It's some of what Bullinger talked about, and that is the scriptures are not, are not only God's word having been spoken in the past and written down in and through this word, God speaks. Present tense. You know, it's fascinating. We'll look at this uh, tomorrow. But fascinatingly, in Hebrews 3, Hebrews 3, verse 7, that's quoting Psalm 95. The author the preacher says, the Holy Spirit says. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit said, quoting Psalm 95. The Holy Spirit says. And it's not the only time that that occurs in, in the book of Hebrews. That is to say, we are not surprised then, that's Hebrews 3, 7, and then quoting Psalm 95. And you know what Psalm 95 says? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart like they did at Meribah. Today, 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 encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. Why? So that no one's heart will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 3, 12, 13. This, this, the Holy Spirit says, and I think this is why we, we have a faulty view of the scriptures which I think has led some to seek something additional beyond. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, are we going to believe it or not? Yep, are we going to believe it or not? And it's not, and, and, and I would say this, it's, it's, a, it's a belief that's going to bear fruit. There will be a response. It's the functional, as, was, as Bollinger identified, there's a functional implication to that. It'll bear fruit. In, it'll be seen. It'll be manifest. Whatever we decide here of the scriptures, it'll be manifest in how we carry it out. Absolutely. Yep. And, and some of that, it, it, even, even that, you know what? There's a humility because it's not based upon our smarts. God, the Holy Spirit, who inspired, needs to illuminate. There's a humility. There is a humility. Well, uh, yeah, John. Oh, another break. Already? Wow. Okay. Well, listen. Listen. Here's, uh, I'll do the next slide. Uh, no one will want to take a break now because they're going to want to study. Look what we're going to do. Quiz on the doctrine of Scripture. We're going to have a quiz. I'm sorry? Oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. That's fine. You're the, you're the leader. You, you give them whatever you want, John. Ten minutes? Now, if, if any of you want to cram, go right ahead, but, but maybe not. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs>